You're listening to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are almost, not quite, but almost to the end of this series in the book of Revelation, this survey that we're doing. Like we've mentioned before, this is a high-level overview of the major themes and theology of the book of Revelation, some of the practical, like on the ground, what does this mean for us today kind of content as we're working through the book of Revelation. And like always, I have a few things I want to say a little bit better right now than I did while preaching this uh, live on Sunday and a few things at the end that I want to add to this because I didn't quite have enough time. Maybe I didn't manage my time well. I don't know. I'll leave that up to you. But um, so just before we dive into the actual message, uh, right near the beginning of this, I was trying to express a little bit more clearly um, the nature of the two beasts and how they connect together and how they connect to the dragon and this first beast being empire and government that stands opposed uh, to the purposes of God on the earth, empire and government as, as places of influence and authority on behalf of the dragon. And the second beast being um, religious, institutional power that's connected to the empire, that's connected to state. And I was giving this example just sort of off the cuff and I wanted to explain it a little bit better. Um, and one of the realities of the church in John's day as he's writing this is that the uh, Judaism was a protected religion in Roman uh, law under the Roman state. Judaism was protected. And when you became a follower of Jesus, uh, you came out from under that protection. Christianity following Jesus in the way of Jesus was not protected. And so there's a great temptation and a great wrestling with people um, as to whether or not they actually wanted to do that. And likewise, in our culture, um, in Canada, North America, but in Canada, where I am, our, our, our churches have experienced the blessing of being quite protected and sheltered by our government. And one of the specific ways that this has happened has been in the area of tax uh, exemptions, um, also charitable status, official charitable status with government. So when somebody gives to the church, when they tithe, that gets registered with the government and they get a tax break on that. And so that's been this sort of protection, this benefit from the church uh, being under government. But um, what, what we see sort of John, I, I think exposing, and it's one of the things we need to wrestle with, is what happens when the government, then the state, begins to impose on the church things that uh, contradict scripture or um, ways of living that um, grieve the heart of God and things like that. If, if the 
church is uh, living to protect its place within the state, I don't, I think that's a dangerous thing. And so if our churches are asked to officially adopt um, moral and ethical positions that we believe uh, are contradictory to the way of Jesus and, and the way of the Lamb, and the church is then threatened to have its charitable status revoked, um, that, that could be a significant issue for many churches financially. And here's the, here's the problem when uh, these two beasts are working together, when the church enjoys the uh, provision of the state and the protection of the state, and therefore doesn't want to challenge sort of the influence of the state on the church, we run into problems. And um, so one of the one of the unhealthy byproducts of the protection that the church has experienced as it relates specifically to tax receipts and giving is that it has shifted, I think, this is my own assessment, it's shifted uh, giving and tithing away from a biblical center to a government financial benefit center. So I give, I'm not saying me, but uh, a lot of times the, the ethos is I give to the church because I'm going to get a benefit back from the government in my taxes. And we've actually shifted the heart of giving from having a biblical root to one um, that is a root that benefits me, that benefits you, that benefits those who are giving. And I actually think this, although it has been awesome, I've enjoyed it, I've, I've uh, reaped the benefit of it, you might have too, uh, that's great. But it actually, if that gets taken away from us, what's gonna happen to the church when we recognize that huge swaths of those who are attending and giving are not doing it out of biblical, godly conviction. They're doing it because they're getting a return on that at the end of the year when they do their taxes. And so um, I had mentioned in church, and this I said it kind of very jumbled, if push comes to shove and we are asked to compromise our biblical uh, ethic, moral ethic, what we feel um, is mandated by God for a, a biblical way to live, then we would, as Mountain Park, we would let our uh, charitable status go. And um, that, I actually don't think that would be a huge challenge for our church. We have been sort of, I think, turning the ship with giving and tithing and, and um, sort of re- casting a vision for how that is part of our walk with God and a, a biblical thing, not just a, a, a blessings thing from the government because we get money back. But that will be a danger faced by many churches and might be um, uh, the very thing that the church leadership in different situations decides we can't afford to take that risk. So now we're going to compromise on something we didn't think we ever would compromise on. And so this is how that second beast is always serving 
the needs of that first beast. And that's a practical, I think that's coming down the pipe. I don't think that is um, really that far off. Um, depending on who is in government next, maybe that's prolonged by a few years, but um, these are the very real tensions that we are gonna be faced with. And the question will be, are we, because of the benefit of the protection we've received from government and the blessing and the comfort that provides, are we going to be able to follow the way of the lamb um, in the midst of that kind of testing and trial? And I hope that we do collectively as a church in North America, but I think that's gonna be a very real test. And I think other tests are happening and will happen in different areas. So I just, I wanted to just clarify what I meant, cause you're gonna hear that right off the top. I'm gonna to send you into this message now. And like I mentioned, I have more content to add at the end of that. I hope that this is helpful for you. If you're listening along and you have been listening along, um, amazing, I can't believe it actually. I don't, I'm not sure I would want to listen to my own voice for this long, but uh, congratulations. Uh, I hope that today, as you're listening to this, you experience the tangible presence of Jesus, that you experience the tangible work and ministry of the Holy Spirit as he uh, brings scripture to life for you and for me today. I'll see you on the other side. Just a few things. We're about to head into the next few uh, chapters of Revelation. Um, like I mentioned last week, um, we're gonna just slow down a, a touch. We're not gonna come to a grinding halt here, so don't worry if you're already annoyed that this has been taking so long. But um, we are going to, um, today I'm gonna just jump back into chapter 14, which I didn't really talk about last week. There's some really important and crucial things in chapter 14. And so if you've got your little scripture journal, um, that's amazing. Uh, you can get it out. If you haven't got one of these yet, I still want to encourage you. There's a few left at our information bar. You can get these. I think they're like 10 bucks or something like that. Um, but I want to encourage you with that. I also want to um, just make a few clarifying uh, comments just in light of last week's message. And to be honest, um, a lot of what John is talking about as he's engaging with um, his friends in these seven churches, but engaging with the dragon and these two beasts that we talked about last week, that first beast working on behalf of the dragon who is Satan, that first beast being empire and government and authority that stands opposed to the work in the kingdom of God on the earth. And like we mentioned last week, that beast, he's been alive and active <laughs> all through history and he's still active today. And in John's day, that was Rome. He was talking about the power of Rome, about empire. He was talking about the emperor Nero and the, the institution of government that opposes the work of God in the kingdom. And that second beast, that beast from the earth, is religion that comes into cooperation with 
governments that are opposed to the kingdom of God, to the way of the lamb. And I wanna just make a few clarifying statements. Number one, I don't really enjoy talking about politics in the middle of this. And so, and number two, often I say things that later on I wish I wouldn't have said, number one, or uh, that I could have said more clearly. And so I just wanna clarify a few things with relation to uh, Revelation 13, which we talked about last week. Uh, number one, I do believe, I made a statement last week um, that was something to the effect that God's greatest concern is not for Christian nations. Um, and that is very broad and could be very confusing. And I wanna just explain a little bit more of what I mean with that. What I do not mean by that is that God has called Christians to just run and hide in the woods and to just wait their time out until Jesus returns and pretend like nothing's going on. That's not what I mean by that. What I also do not mean by that is that God does not call people into the political realm, into seats of office with a calling and a purpose on their life. I think God does call people into government and he calls people into places of political authority and office. I think he totally does that. And when I uh, say I don't think his greatest concern is to have Christian nations, I don't mean that Christians should be totally like separated from that reality. I, according to John, we can't and we're not. And so um, if you heard me and your walking out conclusion was, well, Andrew just wants us to, to live, you know, up in the woods together and to hunt bears and, you know, skin seals and do stuff. I don't know why I'm thinking of this. But anyway, you know, up in the Arctic, right? Okay, it may be tempting. That's actually very tempting. But um, that's not what I meant. What I also believe is that the heart of God is that his kingdom is expressed through our lives in an increasing measure. I do believe that God's heart is that the nations of the world experience the renewal and revival that come from his spirit and his presence. I believe that according to Peter, God says he doesn't want anyone to perish but everyone to come to know him. So the heart of God is not like, you know, that he doesn't care about people in nations coming to know him. Of course he does. And our, our church, our, my heart and our, our whole orienting in life is to see the kingdom of God flourish and expand on the earth. What I want to just clarify in that is I think that there are two different ways that people approach the kingdom of God expressing itself on the earth. One approach is that he brings personal renewal and revival in the church and that the work of God in us begins to spill out into the world around us. I believe that's what God wants. I believe that he wants to bring transformation to the nations and to our nation through the renewal of his spirit in your life and in my life. 
He wants our lives to impact our neighborhoods and our friends and our families, our social circles. He wants his renewal to impact people who are in seats of government and positions of power, people that are bringing forward legislation that honors the heart and the character of God. Yes, he wants that. What I meant by what I said last week is I don't think what God wants is us to just think that we can pass Christian legislation and that will make a Christian nation. Passing laws that require everybody live according to our convictions will not bring revival and renewal on the earth and it will not make our nation Christian, so to speak, in my humble opinion. I think God's heart is that we transform the reality of our governments and, and our nations from the move of his spirit in our life. It begins with you and I. That's what I meant to say last week, which I didn't say any of that. Um, and I had a great conversation with some friends this week about some of these realities. And there's a whole bunch of like realities at play here that are real and I wanna recognize those. Um, the struggle for the followers of Jesus that John was writing to was the empire was demanding their worship and allegiance. The empire was demanding, hey, in order, in order to be able to buy and sell in our Roman markets, so this is a real historical thing, in order to be able to buy and sell in our Roman markets, first you have to go to the temple, then you have to burn incense to Caesar, and then what he's gonna do, what's gonna happen is these priests will smudge the incense on your forehead or your hand, which will then signify to those who are running the market that you can enter. So when John is talking about the mark of the beast impacting the ability to buy and sell, that was not for like some future people thousands of years later, that was for them right there. And the question that they were faced with is, am I going to bow my knee to Caesar so that I can get into the market so that I can engage in business and commerce with the Roman culture around me? Or am I going to actually resist that and pay the consequences of that? The second threat, the beast from the earth, was religious power that had aligned itself with Rome. Judaism was an approved religion in Roman society and culture when John wrote Revelation. So they were a protected group. And here's the thing, and I, I wanna just kinda leave this with you as food for thought. The question and the struggle they Face the followers of Jesus is I can revert back to Judaism and be protected by the government. I can engage in spiritual activity but come under the protection of the government or I can actually resist that, follow the way of the lamb and not find myself under the protective covering. I wanna just uh, say this. Um, uh, churches in Canada are afforded certain protections by the government. Tax protections, 
tax breaks, all kinds of things. And they're, they're a blessing and they're great, but those protections are not the things I believe that we should be necessarily fighting for. So as an example, I think it's very possible one day that the government will say, unless you follow X, Y, and Z, we're going to remove your religious tax benefit. It's, I think this is probably one of the next things coming. So uh, in very real terms, if you do not sign away that you uh, agree with us about uh, our view of human sexuality and all of this stuff, then we will remove your tax benefit and your members will no longer get a tax break on their giving. That's a very real reality that is probably not that far off. So we enjoy this protection and this benefit of being under the government. Our challenge will be, what would we be willing to sell for that benefit? I would say to you, I would rather quit and volunteer and our whole staff quit so we have no overhead um, as a church, no great financial need in order for us to stay faithful to Jesus in that, right? So, so, but those are the very real pressures that were on the church in John's day and that are on ours. And, um, and there's a lot for us to sort out in there. I just wanted to uh, nuance that a little bit. Um, uh, secondly, we talked about the mark of the beast. Um, there's many interpretations of that, like I mentioned, I would take a, a symbolic interpretation and that'll be even more clear as we step into chapter 14. But what I didn't sort of express to you is why then 666? So I said it's symbolic. The mark on the head is, a, is, is symbolic of a, a perception, a way of thinking that's either driven by Jesus or driven by the dragon. The mark on the hand is actually how we live. That's our behavior, our lifestyle. Is your lifestyle consistent with the lifestyle of the lamb or of the dragon? And that's the question that is being asked here. But the 666 in particular, those numbers had meaning, much more meaning to John's audience then than they do now. The number seven is the number for perfection and total completeness. It's the number used to associate with God often. The number six is the number for man. Man was created on the sixth day. There's, there's, you could go through a hundred different things. The number six is a number that John's audience would have understood to mean man, to mean incomplete and, and uh, categorically not God. And what John is saying by using this 666 is he's taking the number six and then he's taking the triad, the number three, Three means complete, and I think what John is saying is this, uh, the way of the dragon, the, the worldview of the dragon, the behavior and the lifestyle of the dragon is utterly and totally and completely inadequate and incomplete. It will never bring you what it promises to bring you. I think that that's kind of what's underneath of that, and I just wanted to make those few comments. 
I don't know if we should pray and ask Jesus to have the sun stand still for us here so that we can get through chapter 14, but I'm gonna invite Andrew and Tracy to come and I'm gonna grab another microphone somewhere here beside you, Jess. And while they're doing that, um, why don't you stand up and we're gonna stand for this reading today. We have chapter, um, actually, we'll give Tracy that one. We have chapter... Uh, 14, so we're going to reread 14 and chapter 15. So uh, you can follow on the screen, you can follow in your Bible, you can close your eyes and just imagine it. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Sion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. And it is those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in the mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth and to every nation and tribe and language and people and he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, they, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. 
So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the grape winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadii. And then, a, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the son of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Amen. Before you sit down, why don't you just uh, say hi to somebody around you and uh, fist pump, shake their hand, give them a hug if you want. Thanks. All right. Rochelle said you already did that, but that's okay. Uh, All right, let's uh, work through this. I'm just going to pray more for me than anybody else here. (laughs) So Jesus, we honor you and we honor your word and... um, we do bring ourselves under it to be shaped by it. I just ask, Father, that every purpose you have intentioned for us today, individually and as a whole group, would be fulfilled. And we dedicate ourselves to you, Jesus, under your word. And I just command any unholy power that is present, wanting to have any influence or authority, uh, to be restrained right now in Jesus' name. I forbid the enemy of God from twisting or distorting or confusing or lying to us about the truth that is in the, this word of God that is 
coming from the heart of God. Uh, just command any unclean spirits that have rights or grounds with people here individually to be silent now in Jesus' name. Forbid you from exerting any influence, from undermining the purposes and plans of God for us this morning. Uh, Jesus, give me wisdom and discernment with uh, what you want us to focus on here this morning. Amen. All right. So we're going to work through this uh, chapter 14, 15 a little bit, but um, just as a reminder in this middle scene that we are in, in Revelation that started back in chapter 11, we are now being shown a heavenly perspective. So remember much of Revelation is upstairs, what's going on spiritually, and some of it is downstairs, how it's playing out on the earth. But what we are in the middle is this cosmic scene that God is giving to John through Jesus that, uh, that opens up. Remember, apocalypse means unveiling or a pulling back of a curtain. So God is pulling this curtain back and saying, hey, here's the reality that you need to understand about your life. You are in the middle of a spiritual war. You are in the middle of a cosmic battle. And Jesus has won the victory. The victory is secured, but the battle is actually taking place right now. And so, uh, like we've said so many times, what John is really saying is there's more to what's happening than meets the eye. There's more going on underneath the surface that you need to be aware of. Don't just live your life and base your decisions on what you see right in front of you. There's a lot going on. And so we're in the middle of this cosmic warfare scene in Revelation. And we've been given this window into the unseen reality that took place at the birth of Jesus. We are given a window into the reality that the dragon who tried to kill the church who tried to kill Jesus was unsuccessful and we're told that he's now waging war on the followers of the lamb. You and I don't get a choice as to whether we are involved and engaged in spiritual conflict, we are. And the stated purpose of the dragon was now to turn his attention off of Jesus and onto his followers as a mechanism to undermine the purposes and plans of God. So there's this great war. That war is spilled onto the earth. Now the dragon is waging war on the followers of Jesus. And those followers are described as those who are sealed or marked by Jesus. All right, so again, when we talk about the mark of the beast being symbolic, that is consistent with the mark of Jesus that's on his followers. I don't see tattoos on your foreheads or blinking lights under your wrist like microchips or anything, those may come, but I don't know, and I would be very cautious just to say, well, that's going to be the mark of the beast. The mark was a way to talk about figurative language to express, is this person's whole ideology rooted in the way of the lamb or the way of the dragon? Is their lifestyle, their behavior, their actions, their conduct consistent with the character of Jesus or the character of the dragon? And so we're told we are in this war and that the dragon has uh, 
has enabled on the earth, the rubber hits the road as the dragon infuses empire and power and political structures and emperors and kings and governments and leaders as he infuses them with his purposes to combat the way of Jesus. And then he infuses religious realities that then serve the purposes of the state or the dragon to undermine the plans of God. That's where the rubber hits the road. That's what scholars call the unholy trinity. And that John is revealing to us through Jesus, that is happening right now. So the question in Revelation is who will you worship? Who gets your attention? Very simply, like just think back on your week. What dominated your attention? That's what we're being asked. Is it the lamb and his way or is it the beast and his culture and his way? The question is who will you give your attention to? Whose name is on your forehead or on your hand? Whose image are you carrying? Whose nature is being worked out in your life? That's the question we're being asked. So the question for, not, for us is not whether we are being formed, it's into whose image are you being formed? There are no neutral parties on the earth today. The question is not whether you are being formed into something. The question is whose image are you being formed into? And we're told to caution and guard ourselves from this idea that just because we come here once a week on Sunday, that means we're being formed into the image of the lamb. It's not so binary or black and white. Daryl Johnson says it this way, the question is never, will I be a disciple? Every human being on the face of the globe is a disciple of someone or some ideology. So the question is never, will I be a disciple? The question is always, whose disciple will I be? The question is never, will I be influenced by a spirit? I want you to hear this. The question is not, will I be influenced by a spirit? The question is always, of all the spirits at work in the world, to which spirit will I yield? If you think that you're walking around doing your thing like you do every day and you are not coming into contact with spiritual forces and principalities and rulers, you're living in a delusion. You are. And the question is not if you're being uh, pulled or, or tempted to be influenced by a spirit, it's to which spirit are you following? The Holy Spirit? or the spirits of the dragon. He continues on, the question is never, will I, uh, the question is always of all the kingdoms competing for my allegiance by whose kingdom values will I live? The question is never, will I wear a set of glasses through which I look out at the world and try to make sense of what's going on and my place in it. Everyone wears a set of glasses. Everyone has a set of deeply held basic presuppositions about how things are. The question is always, whose set of glasses will I wear? So the question is never, will I be a disciple? The question is always, whose disciple will I be? We're about to see in chapter 14 
this, I want, I want you just to have this in the back of your mind. If you hear nothing else from me today, which is very possible, I want you to just hear this and have this in the back of your mind. Your choices now have eternal consequence. That's what's underlying chapter 14 here. There are two ways to live. One way is to follow the way of the lamb. The other is to follow the way of the dragon, culture, political power, uh, the things that are opposed to the work of God. Whatever you choose is your free will to do, but just know that that choice will come with repercussions, good and bad. That's what is being outlined for us here. We're gonna come back to verses one to five. 14 verse seven, the gospel message of the first angel. And so these angelic messages are said to be gospel. He says that we are to fear God and give him glory and worship him. I wanna just leave you a couple thoughts. You can jot these in your book. The fear of God can be somewhat confusing for people. I wanna just boil it down for you. Solomon says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is, not like, is hatred towards sin. So fearing God is actually having God's perspective, God's viewpoint, God's nature in how you think about the reality of sin. Fearing God is hatred towards sin. It's despising what God himself despises. Fearing God is looking at your life with sobriety and saying, my goodness, I don't want to call these things that grieve the heart of God good. And we're, we're like, I won't get into it, but you know, like we are under a great amount of pressure from culture and even inside the church to call things that were sin now good and approved by God. But the fear of the Lord is hatred toward evil. So when this angel delivers this gospel message, he's saying, look, the first thing you gotta get right is your perspective on sin. Don't be one who justifies and sympathizes with sin. Some of us treat sin like it's our little cuddly nighttime bear. <laughs> you know, Simon, our nine-year-old, still loves to snuggle with his forest animals on his bed. He's got so many of them. I love getting in there too and spending time with him there, to be honest. Boulder the bear is one of my favorites. But um, so often our view towards sin is like that soft, cuddly little animal. We have sympathy for it. We, we invite it in our life. Oh, it can't be that bad. It can't, it can't really be harmful. If it feels this good, how can it be that bad? And all of these justifications we make and that's the first mistake. Fear of the Lord is hatred towards sin. The second part of that angel's gospel message, give him glory. Glory in the Hebrew means weight. So let me just put these two together. Walk with God's vision for your life as it relates to sin, hatred towards sin, and give the perspective of God weight and influence in your life. Giving him glory is not just saying glory, right? Surprised a lot of you, didn't it, that I just did that? <laughs> not sure how I feel about it yet either, but we'll move on, right? So 
Giving him glory isn't just saying things. Giving him glory is allowing the weight of his perspective to shape how you live and how you walk and how you think. Giving him glory is allowing his perspective on sin to shape and put weight on your life to form you and shape you into his image, the image of the lamb. The third part, worship God, is about attention. Again, we mentioned this last week. So this gospel message of the angel is develop God's perspective on sin. Give it weight in your life. Allow it to to influence you, shape you, change you, shift your perspective, change your way of living. And then in that, you will begin to live a life where your attention is more focused on God than on the stuff that previously consumed you. That's the gospel message of this angel, this first one. The good news that they're proclaiming is the proclamation that the creator has come to the earth and he's going to bring justice to all that's been broken and distorted and ruined by evil. This gospel good news, this eternal good news, as it says in our text, is that the lamb will deal with Satan and all the powers of evil that have caused so much pain and destruction. But here's the thing that I wanna challenge you with. This good news, this eternal good news is not for you and me here. The eternal good news in this context is for the people who are living in Babylon. The eternal good news is for the person that you despise because they stand for everything you're against. The eternal good news is for that person who holds radically different perspectives on life and on morality, on, on ethical grounds, on even, if I would say, be so bold, people who politically lean differently than you do. The eternal good news is not just for you to walk around happy that you have it, it's for that person that literally stands for everything you're against. And that eternal good news is that God has provided a way for them, for the whole world to step out of the destructive, dysfunctional bondage of the kingdom of darkness and into his presence into freedom and into life and into goodness. The eternal good news is good because those who are walking in darkness have a chance to see the light. We can't get stuck, especially in our culture and in our day, we can't get stuck with this perspective that the good news was for me and everybody else can go to hell. The good news is for the people that we struggle the most deeply with and we all have them whether it's that weird uncle or, you know, whoever it is. See, Rachel knows, she's laughing. Don't say who it is though. <laughs> the eternal good news is for those people and it's the message of the redeeming power of Jesus Christ that no matter what they've been walking in, no matter how fiercely they've opposed God, no matter how um, you know, forcefully they've, they've walked away from God, there is grace and mercy available. That's why we're called to pray for and bless our enemy. 14, eight, 
the second angel, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. John here again is not talking, this angel is not talking about the historical city of Babylon, that's been long gone. Babylon in Revelation is figurative language to talk about humanity that lives in rebellion to God. Babylon in uh, Revelation is figurative language for Rome, empires that set themselves against the purposes of God, humanity collectively that sets itself against the purposes of God. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. In John's day, Rome had a vision for life. One of the key kind of statements they made was Pax Romana. If you come into alignment with the empire of Rome, you will experience the peace that comes from being a subject to the empire. Pax Romana was a delusion. It was a total farce. Rome was a violent, oppressive, brutal, empire. There was no peace. Any peace they had came through the sword and violence. It was a total delusion, but their vision for people to get them to kind of buy into Babylon, to buy into the Roman way of thinking and perceiving was to say, look, if you come on board with us, if you just stop fighting and resisting, you'll experience peace. But John is seeing here and hearing this angel say, no, 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 fallen is Babylon. That stuff that you were promised to bring you fulfillment and peace apart from God, it's gonna burn one day. That stuff that you've put all of your hope and your energy into apart from God, the alignment that you gave to political powers and authorities and cultural pressure and all that stuff, that stuff is gonna fall one day. It can't sustain itself under its own weight, let alone under the, judge, the judgment and justice of God. Where are you putting your trust in today? Is it in Babylon or is it in the Lamb? The only way for people to hear the eternal good news sometimes is for Babylon, empire. You could overlay this with the West right now. The only way sometimes for people to hear the eternal good news is for the empire to collapse in on it itself. For the facade to end and people to go, whoa, what was I thinking and doing for so long? Why did I put my trust in that? Sometimes that's the only way for people to be able to hear this eternal good news. So the question we have to ask ourselves in the sort of material West is what about your life and my life? Are we still holding out hope for and living in our own strength with? Have you and do I buy into this lie that we are the captain of our own ship and the author of our destiny? That strength is found within you that your purpose is found within you, that, that you are uh, a powerful, independent being who can exert their own influence and authority on the earth, that, that you don't need anyone or anything to tell you who you are and what you are and what you can become. Are we in our lives in different areas, do we actually buy into the messaging of the dragon? 
that we can be independent, self-sufficient. We've got our financial plan, our retirement plan, everything is put in place. Why would I need God in my life? Even if we say we believe in him, we've structured our life in such a way that we don't need him. That's a good question for us to ask. This third angel, if anyone worships the beast and receives a mark in his forehead or his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath. Again, if you walk in the character of the dragon in your life, if your life looks more like the dragon than the lamb, John is saying here that the end of that is not going to be good. So again, to that question at the very top that I asked you, to ponder this idea of this chapter. Your decisions have consequence. The things that you invest your time and your energy and your life into will have consequence. Who you follow and who you allow to shape your life today will have eternal consequence. This is what Jesus is unveiling for John. Continues on to some really hard stuff. I'm just gonna read real quickly, nine to 11. Another angel followed them saying, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark in his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. This is where we start to have trouble poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. That's horrible. And they will have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So let me just talk really quickly about the nature of God's wrath, like in five minutes here. <laughs> Because at first glance, you read this and you're like, what kind of cruel, sadistic, vindictive God are we talking about here? Like, is he just a toddler throwing a temper tantrum because things don't go the way he likes? Is he like an abuser? Like, what kind of God? Why would I want to follow someone that does that? That's a legitimate question. But the important word in here is the word holy. I want to read you a quote from someone who says it better than me. He was a New Testament scholar, Robert Mulholland Jr. He says, as he's talking about these verses, such people, it is said, will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. This seems an uncharacteristically cruel picture of heaven where the lamb is seated on the throne, surrounded by the holy angels. The operative term here is holy as noted above. The holiness of God burns against all that is unholy, not in a vindictive, retributive, vengeful, punitive manner, but simply as the reality of holiness. John seems to have seen that those who are unholy spend eternity in the presence of the holiness of heaven. Just, I want to read that again. John seems to have seen that those who are unholy spend eternity in the presence of the holiness of heaven. To spend eternity in the presence of holiness 
when one is to the core of your being unholy would be endless torment. If you have, let me, if you have spent your whole life your whole life resisting and rejecting God, if you've spent your whole life bent on uh, completely refusing the way of God, it would be torment then for you to spend eternity with that in view, with the reality of the goodness and the mercy and the greatness of God in view when you've spent your whole life cultivating a heart that rejects and resists him. This passage is not about a vengeful, precocious God. It's about the reality that God honors your choice and how you've decided to live your life. There will be no one in hell one day who's there because God sent them there. Everyone who experiences the torment that John is getting a vision of here will be there because that's what they've set their heart toward and God will honor their requests. And what looked like fanciful goodness for a moment today will turn into eternal torment and anguish. So those who are meeting this Reality are not there because God is just angry and punishing them. They're there because they've decided that they want to reject him in every meaningful way. Live their own life and he will say, fine, you can experience the reality of life with none of my presence anymore. If you want to study or write this down, you could look at, we don't have time to read it, the rich man and Lazarus a parable by Jesus that actually may point to this reality because that rich man, as he's suffering in torment, actually sees Lazarus, but he can't get there. I heard one Christian leader and thinker that I really appreciate, Dallas Willard, he said one thing, and I want to leave this with you. The fire of heaven will be hotter than the fire of hell. Think about that for a minute. At first, that's offensive. What are you talking about? It's going to be like beautiful forests and grass and, you know, streams and brooks and living water. What that means is our God is a consuming fire. That's what scripture says. His holiness burns like a fire. And the idea that the fire of heaven will be hotter is the idea that that there is a price to pay today to walk under the leadership of Jesus that not many people want to pay. If you have spent your whole life hating God and rejecting him, why in any conceivable reality would you want to be near his presence for eternity? That's what Jesus is revealing here. This judgment is not a vindictive, angry, you know, uh, temper tantrum kind of God. This is a God who so deeply honors and respects your free will that he allows you to choose. And he's okay. He will honor. He will honor that for eternity. I want to move on. There are only two options for our life. 
Either God is God of our life or we are God of our life. Our unholiness comes from our insistence to be God and ruler of our own life. Our unholiness comes from our insistence to demand that we live the way we want to live and that we don't need God or want his leadership and involvement in our everyday life. So the unholiness of those who reject God in the way of the lamb will inevitably come into contact with God's holiness, which will then become a terrible torment to them. I've staked everything in my life on this. I've lived my whole life by this set of principles. I've rejected and hated God and his influence in my life. One day, every one of us will come into the reality of the holiness of God and our determination on how we live. Was God really God of our life or were we will come into focus? Let me give you one illustration as we close here about this contrast here that is being drawn for us. So all of you right now are seated comfortably, right? Pretty good, there's no nails sticking up in your seats or things. You may wanna get up and leave right now, which is totally understandable, but you're seated comfortably right now because you're in perfect harmony with the law of gravity. You're not challenging the law of gravity. You're actually in harmony with it and you're enjoying peace and you're enjoying comfort. So just for the purposes of this, let's presume right now we're, we're in a conference room on the top floor of the Hilton overlooking the falls, right? And you're seated comfortably. You're in harmony with the law of gravity. You're at peace and at rest. There's no big conflict going on, but let's just say after we're done here in a few minutes, we're on the top floor of the Hilton. You decide that you want to go see the falls, but instead of taking the elevator down and going to the ground floor, you decide to just step off the balcony and make your way down that way. See, nothing would have changed about the law of gravity. Gravity doesn't become evil and vindictive and cruel in that. Gravity is gravity. But at one time you were working in coordination with it. You were in sync with it. It was uh, something that you weren't defying. But then when you step off the edge of that building, you are now in opposition to the law of gravity. And gravity then works as an irretractable law. It pulls you down to the earth where you meet a horrible end. Don't focus on that part. This is like the holiness of God. It's, it's a reality. It's a part of his nature. And what he's saying here in Revelation 14 is you have a choice with whether you're going to come into alignment with the nature of God and experience the goodness and blessing and life of God, or you will live testing that. Will you live in defiance of that, thinking that you can overcome that? You can't overcome it any more than you could overcome the law of gravity if you stop a step off the balcony of that top floor. 
And this is what Jesus is revealing to us, that God's holiness in that way is like gravity. It's his nature, but it's not vindictive and cruel. In the same way that gravity isn't vindictive and cruel, it's just cruel, it just is. So your choice today, are you gonna walk in alignment with the nature of God or alignment with the beast? Why don't you stand, uh, Ben, you can come up. I wanna read you one last quote as we end here. This quote from J.I. Packer in his famous book, Knowing God. God's wrath in the Bible is something which men choose for themselves. Before hell is an experience inflicted by God, it is a state for which man himself opts by retreating from the light which God shines in his heart to lead him to himself. The unbeliever has preferred to be by himself without God, denying God, having God against him, and he shall have his preference. No one stands under the wrath of God, save those who have chosen to do so. The essence of God's action in wrath is to give men what they choose in all of its implications, nothing more and nothing less. God's readiness to respect human choice to this extent may appear disconcerting and even terrifying, but it is plain that his attitude is supremely just. This reality that Jesus is bringing to our attention is this reality that your choices matter, your life matters. And the question before us is what is gonna shape your life? The nature and the heart of God, the way of the lamb or the way of our culture and our world and everything that opposes God. He will respect your choice. Lastly, probably the grossest verse of the whole book, maybe the Bible, talks about blood flowing up to the means of the horses for 1,600 stadia, that's 180 miles. It's not a picture, I don't believe, of this maniacal, vicious, cruel God Notice how it says that that's happening outside the city. Where was Jesus crucified? He was crucified outside the city. I actually believe that this, at least in part, is a picture of the saving, redemptive work of Jesus as he shed his blood for us. That blood runs deep and far. That 180 miles is actually in John's day about the distance from Palestine, from Tyre to the border of Egypt, meaning that that blood is sufficient to cover everything in your life. That blood is sufficient to work past
powerfully in your past and in your present and in your future. That, that blood of Jesus that was shed outside the city for your sin and for my sin and for my dysfunction and your dysfunction, that that blood that runs deep to the horse's mane and runs far is sufficient for you today. It's a picture not of some gory, gross God, but of the lengths to which he will go to redeem us for himself. And the question for our life today is, would you allow Jesus, would you give him the, the privilege and the honor to work on your behalf? Would you accept what he did on the cross? and that he invites you to come and to lay your life down for him, to be led by him. Our decisions have consequences and we're tempted to be driven by a falling culture and world around us, but there is a remedy for our wrong decisions. The question is, are you willing to receive what Jesus did for you? You who have been following Jesus for a long time here, are you, are you willing to move in alignment with God in greater measures in different parts of your life? Are you willing to continue to surrender your will and your desire to him? Are you willing to follow him into different places and spaces? Are you willing to be led by him as much today as you were that first day you accepted him? If you're here today and you don't know really anything that I've talked about or you're not sure about Jesus, in his way of life, the invitation is there nonetheless. Would you, would you turn your heart and your life to Jesus and allow him to lead you? Let's pray. Spirit, I just ask that you would come and that you would bring conviction to each of us uniquely in the areas we need it. Father, I pray for those who are here and they're just kind of seeing the highlight reel of all of their dysfunction and all of their sin and all of their shame and all of their behavior that they know has grieved you and all of the choices they've made and the, the things they feel like a failure in and all of those things. And I just ask Jesus in the midst of that, that you would stop the real, that you would remind everyone here who is discouraged and overwhelmed and ashamed and broken that what you did outside the city on Calvary is enough for us, that your grace is sufficient for us and that your invitation is to turn to follow you today again. Whether we 
have never followed you or whether we've walked away from you or whether we're just struggling and feeling cracked and dry. Father, I pray that you would bring conviction to the very specific areas of our life where we, where we need it. You teach us to follow the way of the lamb, to be marked by him in our thinking and in our living. Father, we do pray for our friends and our family and our neighbors and our governments. And we pray, Father, for an outpouring of your spirit and your presence and your blessing in their life. Father, where we are legislating things that grieve your heart, Father, I'm praying that you would intervene and that you, Father, would bring about a renewal in our communities and in our cities and in our churches and in our homes, Father, that you would bring renewal through our lives, renewal through the work of your cross. And Father, for those who are still in their heart, standing hard and with their fists clenched, opposing you. I pray for a breakthrough of a, your spirit of mercy and grace and truth in life. We love you, Jesus. Father, I pray that everything that you have purposed in your heart through your word today would it come to fulfillment in each one of our lives. Jesus, it's an honor to be led by you. Teach us to follow you in the really practical stuff of life today and tomorrow. Okay, I just have a few things I want to add to this sort of last section, which I didn't really walk through in detail because of time once again. But um, this section in verses 14 to 20, essentially, where we have the angel that's on the cloud who's swinging the sickle, then we have the image of this wine press that's getting, you know, um, harvested and the grapes are being pressed and the blood is coming up to the the horse's um, mane or bridle, whatever it was, and it's really deep and really long. Um, I just wanted to explain a few things uh, with that. There's different interpretations of this section. Some people see these two acts as different acts, one being sort of salvation, the reaping, the salvation, and the other being judgment. Um, I would tend to, in humility, not as a, you know, not as a super strong sort of position, but just in humility, I would tend to lean where um, men like Daryl Johnson and R.T. France are leaning with this, and that these two actions, um, the these two swinging of the sickles and the reaping and a harvesting of the grapes um, and all of that stuff are two actions that are talking about the same thing, salvation. Um, these two actions are described in near identical terms and I think could be seen as two sides of the same coin. And uh, I want to just highlight one specific thing that's a part of why 
um, I would tend to agree with some of the people that I've just mentioned. And that's that phrase, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. In the Old Testament, the vine of the earth was always a reference to Israel. And you can find that in Isaiah 5, 1 to 7, uh, Jeremiah 2, 21, Hosea 14, 7, Micah 4, 4, Zechariah 3, 10, Malachi 3, 11. So the, the vine of the earth in the Old Testament was Israel. What did Jesus compare or declare about himself in John 15? Jesus in John 15 now declares that he is the true vine. So Jesus is saying in John 15, I am the true Israel. I came to fulfill everything that Israel was meant to be. And so I think that this is talking about salvation that comes from and through Jesus. The other phrase I just quickly mentioned that's of importance here is the phrase outside the city. Um, and one of the things we, you know, if, if you were one of John's friends or you were Jewish in John's day and you heard that phrase outside the city, I think um, it's pretty safe to say that you would automatically think of or right near the top of your thought process would be that Jesus was crucified outside of the city. So in Hebrews 13 verses 12 to 14, it says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So outside in this context, is the place of salvation. Outside is where the cross is. Outside is the place where the wrath of God against sin was expressed and laid upon Jesus on the cross. All right, so Jesus is the true vine and outside of the city, Jesus endured and, and was placed on him. God placed on him and expressed his wrath. God placed on him the iniquity of all humankind for all time. And so that leads us then to, um, I think, the possibility of seeing, at least on one level, of seeing that the blood that's flowing up as high as the horse's bridle is not some sort of gory reflection of a sadistic and angry God who is just crusading um, and creating a bloodbath out of humanity. Um, that picture of the blood coming up to the the bridle of the horse and being 1600 stadia, about 180 miles, um, that I think we can see, at least in part, as a picture of Jesus shedding his own blood for our sin. So much of that blood, so much blood, more than we can imagine and more than we could ever need. I think that may be part of the, the figurative symbolism in even Paul's um, not Paul, <laughs> John's use of 1600 stadia. Um, and uh, we could even break that 
down um, that number 1600 uh, four times four times ten times ten four is the number for humanity four times four the number of humanity ten is the number of completeness and so maybe 1600 even of itself is talking about the complete sufficiency of the blood of Jesus for all humanity all time enough blood to completely and fully cover all of humanity and so I wanted to just kind of spend a little bit more time clarifying that for you um, that I think that maybe rather than this being a picture of a gruesome and gory and bloodthirsty God that some people try and paint this is actually the depth of the sacrifice and the shedding of blood, the depth of meaning and power and significance uh, for that. And uh, so the question for you and for I out of that is, are we one of the lambs people or are we one of the dragons people? Which mark, so to speak, is shaping your life? is shaping how you think and perceive and look at your own life and the world around you, which mark, which is shaping how you behave and how you act, how you live in this world, the lifestyle that you carry. I think there's two distinguishing, I, there's more, but there's two distinguishing marks of the lamb from this that I want to leave with you. Number one, first distinguishing mark of the lamb, I am not my own. Um, at the beginning of this chapter, the 144,000, which is again a number to symbolically reference uh, total completeness and uncountable completeness. And that number is meant to represent the redeemed and restored of Israel and the, the rest of the body of Christ grafted together. Um, that is all of the redeemed. That number, 144,000, is called the redeemed. And that word redeemed literally means to be purchased. It's a, it's a transfer of ownership. Paul says that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We're not our own. And so, again, even that statement and that idea uh, deeply confronts the narrative and the values of the dragon and the two beasts. We are told by our culture that our body is our own to do with whatever we want, um, that nobody um, owns us, that nobody that we are the um, author of our own life and the author of everything uh, we want to be, that we can define everything about us. And so the first distinguishing mark of the lamb is that the people that bear that mark recognize they're not their own, that um, we are not our own. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Our life itself is not our own. Our decisions aren't our own. Our choices, our, you know, um, the direction we're heading in the future is not just ours to determine in if we're going to follow the way of the lamb. The second one is, um, and this is the second distinguishing mark, is that my life is an offering. So the first distinguishing mark of the uh, 144,000, the 
people of the Lamb is that we know we're not our own. The second is we know our life is an offering. And uh, in 14.4, the uh, ones who are standing on that um, sort of sea of glass mixed with fire, again, glass or the sea, sorry, the sea being a reference to unholy power, to evil and chaos, and every spiritual reality opposed to the kingdom rule of God. That sea is now mixed with fire. Some people say that can be a reference to the Red Sea that is parted and the redemption that comes through the Red Sea for the people of Israel in Exodus. I think that that's a possible um, layer of understanding here. Other, Another one is the reality of fire is a representation of God's judgment. So God's judgment, his holiness now is, is, is entered into our space. His holiness is now uh, working its way through um, our world and our lives. And so those people, um, those 144,000 are called the first fruits in 14.4. And this confronts the nature of the dragon that says that others and God exist to meet my needs and my wants. So first distinguishing mark, I'm not my own. My body isn't my own to do with what I want. Second, my life is an offering. Um, God isn't here to meet my needs. Other people aren't here to meet my needs. God doesn't exist to fulfill my dreams for my life. God doesn't exist to fulfill uh, my desires in the way that I want them fulfilled or expressed. Uh, my life is meant to be an offering to God, not God an offering for my life. And of course, Jesus gives himself as an offering for us, but uh, we're in turn called to lay our lives down as an offering to him to surrender um, the very direction of our life, the very decisions of our life. And so I just wanted to leave some of those things with you. Like always, um, I hope that this is stirring you to, uh, to greater measures of prayer and study. I hope that this is stirring you to consider uh, how you are living in these days. Are you following the way of the lamb or of the way of the dragon? We will uh, see you next week for the next few chapters as we uncover the significance of the golden bowls of wrath, <laughs> the great prostitute and all of that crazy, crazy stuff. I'll see you then.